Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 22? I'm very thankful for each of you that are here today, and and there is something about the seating arrangement we have and this idea of, of sitting down and having a meal with someone. I think of the word shared. There's this emphasis in the New Testament about being hospitable. That is a, a friendliness to a stranger. And when you have a meal with someone, say you have them over in your home, what you are doing is you're, you're sharing your table with them. You're sharing your plates and utensils and cups with them. Likely you're doing your very best to prepare for them a, real, a well-tasting meal. You're, you're sharing time, and you're also sharing yourself. And I hope all of that is going to be taking place this afternoon here at our church, that we're, we're going to be sharing these things together. And as we think of the Scriptures, there are a couple of significant meals that we see throughout the pages of Scripture. What I'd like to do today is, is take it some time and, and just land on a three of these. Now, the first one and the third one, we're, we're just going to kind of do an overview of. But the second one, the Lord's Supper, we'll spend a little bit more time on. So let me just think for a moment, as you consider some of the significant events in your life, likely they took place around meals. I mean, for children... Uh, they have these birthday parties, and if it's anything like ours, it's usually over pepperoni pizza, right? And it's an opportunity for others to gather for a meal. Well, what we are saying is, God, we thank you for letting us have this daughter, this son. When you're a little bit older, I think of your first date, and you go out for a meal, and you are exclusively spending time with one person. I don't know what that was like for you, but for me, I was very nervous. Like, what am I going to talk about during that time as a naturally shy person? And then I remember the time when um, I, I started to see Melody and, and thought, you know, this could be the woman that I would marry and in a meal in which I had her, her father and mother over to my modest little apartment on the east side of Green Bay and how I made sure I vacuumed and, and dusted and and all these odds and ends of furniture, I did my best to make them look presentable and to provide a meal for them. I, want, I really wanted to have that go well. And then I imagine as your children get older and they, they move away, to have them all come back for a birthday, an anniversary, Thanksgiving or Christmas, and, and just for a couple of hours, to have them over one roof can be very significant. It's, it's the meal, right? Well, the first one I want us to consider today is the Passover. This is one that we see in the second book of the Bible. It's, it's Exodus. And if you know a little bit of that story, you, you're reminded that God's people, the Jews, were being ruled by these Egyptians. And God had heard these cries of his people. And in mercy, he says, all right, I'm going to set you free from them and and deliver you to a promised land that was promised to your father, Abraham. And so there were ten different plagues, you remember? 
And on the tenth plague, the plague was that all the firstborn males would be killed. So God worked this wonderful miracle where he said, here's what we're going to do for you, my people, the Israelites, the Jews. What we're going to have is you sacrifice a spotless lamb, one without blemish. It will be killed and the blood will be poured out into a basin, a container. And then we'll take a branch, a hyssop branch, and you dip it into that blood and you spread it over the doorpost. And when the angel of death visits home to home, wherever he sees that blood is applied to that doorpost, he will pass over onto the next home. And so from that point forward, God's people were to remember this Passover meal. And they were given certain symbols. Remember, there was a hyssop branch was to be, uh, to be commemorated with a thing like parsley, where they would eat that during the meal and say, hey, this represents that hyssop branch. They would have some bitter herbs, and those would represent, hey, our ancestors, when they were in slavery, it was a very bitter and hard time for them. They would even have a, like a little bone, and it would be like there was a lamb that's blood was shed so that we wouldn't have to experience God's judgment. And if you know that story, annually that God's people would remember that Passover meal. In fact, this past spring, we had someone come from Chosen People Ministries and did that Passover meal with us, and it all pointed to Christ. If you know the story then, and how God's people were liberated from Egypt and they went out to uh, to this wandering at, at point at first point they went to the base of this Mount Sinai with their leader Moses it was there where Moses was given what is called a covenant God's people would enter into a an agreement with God and he would bless them if they obeyed and he was saying to them you will be my people if you obey and what obey what well it was there where they received what is called the law. Now, during this summer, we, we hit on a key part of that law called the moral law. And we hit on a centerpiece called the Ten Commandments. And that moral law has a couple of different functions. And one, it's to restrain society from sin. So thank God that we have laws on the books that you shall not murder or you shall not steal because there's penalties for that. There's another function of that moral law, and that it is it helps us to understand the character of God and God's will for our lives. But the third function that we hit on a lot this summer was that it, it shows us our sinfulness and how we need to be forgiven from our sin. And so it's been kind of a hard summer of messages, I think, because if you came to church thinking, I've, I've got it all together and, and I'm a morally upright person, it was like ten separate messages that impaled your pride and crushed your self-sufficiency. And that's what this good law does. It shows us our sin. It'd be the equivalent of saying, what we're going to do is gather every Sunday morning because what we want to do is have you Break the world record of the fastest mile. I think it's like three minutes and 43 seconds or something like that. And we say, what we want you to do 
is by the end of this series of messages, be able to run a mile in 45 seconds. And you say, there's no possible way I can do that. And you get that message for 10 straight Sundays. And you're like, enough of this. I, I know that I can't do that. And, and that's kind of the point of the law. It shows us our need to be rescued from our sin. There was a part, a couple of other parts of the law that was downloaded there at Mount Sinai. One of them was the civic law, like laws for the specific people, the Israelites. But then there was something called a ceremonial law, that there would be this sacrificial system because that man's guilt hung over him. He needed somehow to get forgiveness, and so there were these temporary sacrifices of blood and, and bulls where blood would be shed as a substitute for man's sin. Now, the ceremonial laws and these civil laws are no longer in play for us, but the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, we see those repeated in the New Testament, so they're still relevant to us today. So the first meal that we're covered here this morning is what we call the Passover meal. And as we look over the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that there is this judgment that kind of just is present. And there is man and women and their struggle to have a relationship with God, but they are unable to because of the sinfulness of their heart. What will God do? Tim Keller tells of of an author by the name of Dorothy Sayers. She was a very gifted writer. In fact, she's one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And her specialty was in writing mystery novels. And the main character in her books was a man by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. He was kind of a, in the leading ruling class. He was also a detective. And so as these novels were written one by one, Lord Peter would be the, the main character in these books And while he was brilliant at solving cases, one by one of these novels would reveal that he was flawed as a person. He was broken. He was unhappy. Something began to happen as these novels became cranked out one after another. A new character emerged in these novels. A woman by the name of Dorothy Sayers. Tell me if this sounds a little familiar. Dorothy was one of the first woman graduates of Oxford. Dorothy was a mystery writer that wrote novels. And Dorothy, rather Harriet, this is the woman's name in the, in the novel, Harriet actually meets Lord Peter. And they, they date one another. They enter into a relationship with one another. And they get married. And something happens to Lord Peter. He is now complete. He is now satisfied. We might say that this woman came in and, and rescued him from his condition. What the author did, Dorothy Sayers, is she, she had a, a character in her story that was flawed. And she wrote herself in in order to rescue him. And that's a wonderful picture of what takes place in your story as well. 
is that all of us are flawed. All of us are broken. All of us have this guilt and God's judgment upon us. But listen, God has wrote himself in to your story by sending Jesus. And as we look at this passage today in Luke chapter 22, we see Jesus' last day. Really, within 24 hours, he will be crucified on the cross. The context here of Luke chapter 22 is the leaders, the enemies of Jesus are positioning themselves to crucify him. One of Jesus' followers, a man by the name of Judas, is about ready to betray him. And during this high-pressured, very tense moment, what does Jesus do? Well, he's going to do exactly what we're going to do a little bit later. He's going to have a meal with some of his friends. He's going to have a meal with them. So look with me now at Luke chapter 22. And let's just go ahead and read verses 7. Through 13. It says in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them. And they prepared prepared the Passover. The first thing we see here in verse 7 is that Jesus is with his disciples and they're actually going to be participating in the first meal we spoke about at the beginning of this message, the Passover meal. This was a a week-long event. We see there in verse 7 that they're getting ready to offer the Passover lamb. And you remember the Passover lamb had to be without spot or without blemish. In verses 8, Through 12, we see that Jesus makes preparations. This is one of those overlooked miracles where he says to a couple of his friends, Peter and John, this is what I'd like you to do, is go and prepare the Passover for us. Find a man with a jar. Tell him that you're looking for a place. And and the, the man provides this place for him where they can participate in this meal together. You'll notice here in this passage that there is an upper room. It's just more of a a comment off to the side. But God uses all of our gifts and all of our talents and all of our experiences. Sometimes we think that it must be just a preacher or a missionary or a, a deacon within the church that God uses. But here in these verses, we see a man that just had a house. It had an upper room which would have indicated that he had some wealth. And he saw that possession as useful to God. And so he says, if you can use this, feel free to use it. And he did to have this meal with his disciples. And we see there in verse 13 that these disciples had the responsibility to get prepared for the Passover. 
And as the disciples were getting prepared for this meal and the Passover lamb, God himself was preparing his son, the other Passover lamb. Look with me now at verse 14. And when the hour came, he, that's Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. I appreciate that word, reclined here. I'm just being honest here. As we read about the disciples, these disciples did not always get it when Jesus was teaching. They didn't always understand what he was saying. There were times we see cases of them arguing with one another who would be the greatest. And I'm thinking that if I were Jesus, I'd be like, man, just one more meal, a couple more days, and I am out of here. But that is not Jesus's position here. It says he reclined. Oh, I think what this means is he was there to soak it in, to take his time. We see this relational Savior here. And I'm hoping that today that you will take your time to be with God's people, to get to know them and to talk with them. Look what it says there in verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But I've been looking forward to this meal for a long time. I couldn't wait to get to this moment where I could be with you guys. It speaks to us about how Jesus valued relationships. He valued people. And notice this word, this, in verse 16. Rather, 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There's an emphasis here on this word this because this Passover will be different than any other Passover. It is here where Jesus will actually fulfill the Passover. It's on this day where he will be the unblemished, spotless lamb and shedding his blood that if applied to your life, God's wrath and God's judgment would pass over and you could enter into a relationship with him. Jesus, in this meal, will fulfill the Passover and after this, the Passover will no longer be necessary. So now let's enter into the second meal, the first one being Passover, The second one is the Lord's Supper. Verse 16 says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there is a new meal that's being presented here. One, that will contain the bread that represents Jesus' body. The other is this cup of juice or wine that represents Jesus' blood. Look at verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, 
This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 20, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Just back up and hit on a few of these things. In verse 19, Jesus said, this is my body. And then he says about that blood, that it, that too is, is his. There are times in Jesus' ministry where he used a figure of speech. For example, he said, I am the door. And I am the vine. And we know what he meant by that, that he is not literally a door, or he is not literally a vine, but he's just making an expression, right? And this is what he is doing here in verse 19 when he says, this is my body, is he's holding that bread. He's not saying that this is actually my body, but he's using it as a symbol. And it says here that it is given for you. It says that in verse 19 and verse 20. This is that concept again of a, of a substitute. We saw that at the Passover meal where a lamb would be killed, the blood would be poured into a basin, it would be spread across doorposts as a substitute. We saw that in the, in the, the ceremonial law where there would be these blood sacrifices and there would be a substitute where these animals, their lives would be cost for them so that God's people might continue to live. And we see here again, Jesus now fulfilling that by being the ultimate sacrifice and there would never need to be another sacrifice. Charles Dickens in his classic work, The Tale of Two Cities, talks about two different men. One whose name was Charles Denar. He was a French, part of the high class. He was well-connected and established. The second guy was a man by the name of Sidney Carton, and, and he was an orphan, a foreigner from England. The story takes place in, in France. And while these two men couldn't be any different in their upbringing, there was one thing they had very common, and that was their physical appearance. And as the pages turn in the tale of two cities, we see the the wealthy man, Charles, getting arrested, put into a, a French prison where he is awaiting execution. And Sidney, the, the poor man, visits him there in the prison. And he actually says to him, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take the death penalty for you. But Charles says, I, I will never, ever allow that. And Sidney thought to himself, I knew you were going to say that. And so he actually knocked him out. So he passes out and he changes clothes with him right there. And then Charles is ushered into a carriage and he goes away free. And so here is Sidney, the innocent man now condemned, wearing prisoner clothing. And within 24 hours, he is executed, beheaded. An innocent man was killed for a guilty man. And that is the good news. 
That is what we remember when we participate in the Lord's Supper. Is that an innocent man was killed for you, was killed for your sins. You'll notice here that it says in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. At the beginning of this message, I spoke to you about an old covenant. The old covenant was if if God's people could obey the law, they would receive blessings. If they disobeyed the law, they would receive curses. And if you know the Old Testament, then you know that that's exactly what happened, is God's people would literally have the promised land stripped from them and all the blessings with it. So Jesus is coming to say, I have a new covenant. My death, my burial, my resurrection is going to sustain you from now forevermore. This new covenant is spoken about in Jeremiah 31. It offers forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant offers a law written on our hearts. 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And it offers a a very close relationship with God. 31.33 says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Within 24 hours, Jesus will die for not only the sins of the world, but for yours. And his death and resurrection will make it possible for everyone to enter into this new agreement, this new covenant. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I just want to look at one other phrase here with you in verse 19. And it says this, Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knew that these disciples and the disciples that would follow have leaky memories. And so he says, there's one thing that I always want you to remember. It's my death. It is interesting, isn't it? That God's church is not called to remember Jesus' birth. Sorry for those of you who love Christmas. There's nothing in the scripture that tells you that we are supposed to do that. We can do that. There's nothing there in the scriptures that says we have to remember a, a particular miracle. We might argue the resurrection, but, but there's an assortment of other miracles. But there is something that we are to do frequently, and that is to reflect back on Jesus' death on our behalf. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So there are two different applications from this passage today. The first is this. If you have never trusted Christ to save you, he has come to die for your sins. His blood has been shed to cover your sins. Place your confidence, your trust in him to save you. That's the application for you today. There's a second application for those who have already done that. And that is, 
to do this in remembrance of him. So if you have your Lord's Supper elements before you, why don't we just reflect not only our sin, but the spotless Lamb who was sinless on our behalf. And though he was tempted in every way, he did not yield to that temptation. He lived a holy, perfect life. And he gave his body for our behalf that we could be forgiven. So let us take now of the bread. And Father, we thank you for Jesus who came to be the perfect sacrifice for us. We thank you for his sinlessness. Jesus, we appreciate you setting an example for us of meeting with one another, loving one another, and sacrificing on our behalves. He says again in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He made it possible through his death for us to enter into this new covenant with him. Blood was shed for our behalf. He fulfilled all the other blood that was shed in the scriptures so that it would never have to be done again. Let us now take of the juice that represents Jesus' blood. Father, we thank you for this amazing sacrifice of Christ, that his shedding of blood is available to remove our sins. And thank you for the faith you've given to us to be able to trust that and to be able to walk in forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.